everybody. Welcome to Volts for August 17th, 2022. Answering your lingering questions and objections about the Inflation Reduction Act, part one. I'm your host, David Roberts. Last week, I hosted a podcast discussion with Princeton professor Jesse Jenkins and UC Santa Barbara professor Leah Stokes about the climate and energy provisions in the Inflation Reduction Act. It proved quite popular. If you haven't listened yet, I highly recommend listening to that before this one. Among other things, we discussed the modeling of the bill done by Jenkins Shop in Princeton. In the days following, I noticed several questions popping up via email and social media about that modeling, how certain or uncertain it was, what it included and left out, how it treated various trends and technologies, and so forth. It seems like people still have lots of questions and objections that weren't answered in the original pod, so I had the idea of having Jenkins back on to get deeper into the modeling. Then I solicited questions on Twitter, which prompted a veritable flood. Questions about leases, about carbon capture and sequestration, about the EV tax credits, and more. There is apparently enormous appetite for further information. So, with this bushel of questions and objections in hand, I've invited Jenkins back today. We ended up talking for so long about so many parts of the bill that I have broken this pod up into two episodes. Never let it be said that I don't have a heart. We are going to go through all of them, or at least as many as we can get to in the space of a podcast, and answer them to the best of our ability. It is going to be fast and nerdy, y'all. Buckle your seatbelts. Okay, with no further ado, Jesse Jenkins, welcome back to Volts. Thanks for coming again. I feel like this is the point where I'm supposed to say, yeehaw, let's go. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, okay, let's not waste any time. Let's start then with the modeling itself. The bill was released alongside basically modeling from your shop from Rhodium, from Energy Innovation, three separate uh, sets of modeling, and they show generally that this bill will lead to 40% reductions in U.S. greenhouse gas emissions by 2030, roughly, give or take, which is roughly, give or take, on track for our stated Paris target, or at least uh, within striking distance of it. You know, modeling is kind of a black box to a lot of people. You know, most people, I don't, I think, don't know how it works, what goes into it, uh, how to treat the results. And I think some people maybe felt a little, what's the word, bullied <laughs> by this idea that like, here's the modeling, you have to accept it. So let's try to put the modeling in context. Just start with sort of, you know, when your model says this is going to lead to 40% reduction by 2030, how certain is that sort of what are the error bars and how firmly should we grasp onto that result? Yeah. I mean, if anybody could predict the future perfectly, uh, I'd probably be in a different line of work <laughs> and uh, making a lot more money than I, I do here. Not that this is a bad job, but um, models are an attempt to understand in a kind of internally consistent manner how changes in a complex system are going to play out or could play out. And so what's nice about these models, and there's, what's interesting is there's three different modeling groups with three very different models that have differing underlying structures and methods, hmm. three different set of expert judgments, you know, about how to represent each of these policies in our, in our models, all kind of landing in a similar place, which I think builds a lot more confidence in the, the you know, sort of the approximate order of magnitude impact of the bill in aggregate. There is certainly a lot of uncertainty around any of these estimates. You know, we're doing our best to rapidly assess a complicated bill to reflect a complicated energy system that you can't perfectly capture in a model, and then to uh, you know communicate those findings in a timely manner that can actually be useful for decision making. You know, not just something that comes out you know a year later in a in an obscure academic journal, right? Is, <laughs> you know just useful and important as that peer review process is, and this is definitely not peer reviewed work. It is important, I think, to be approximately right in real time <laughs> and then to refine our analysis as we go. And that's exactly what we have been trying to do with the repeat project. So, 
you know, we set out in April of 2021, beginning to build a suite of tools on the back of the modeling toolkit that we developed for the Net Zero America study at Princeton, which itself was a two plus year effort with, you know, a dozen different researchers. And to use that suite of tools to be able to quickly and repeatedly analyze federal legislation and eventually executive actions as they're being proposed in as close to real time as we can, a sort of Congressional Budget Office for Climate and Energy Impacts. You know, we're not official, so don't cite us as <laughs> that. But, um, you know, CBO uh, scores or estimates the budgetary impact of bills, not after they pass, but, you know, usually, but in uh, real time, um, you know, as the bill is, is introduced and as it's debated and amended and eventually voted on, you know, they're trying to get a handle on the impact of that bill on uh, the economy and on revenues and expenditures. And obviously that's approximate work too, but it's better than having no uh, information available or just letting lobbyists or, you know, corporate interests or others lob into the media their views on what, you know, the bill will or won't do. And so our attempt here is to provide an independent, you know, credible set of estimates based on a, you know, a strong set of modeling tools but are certainly imprecise for kind of two reasons. One, we can't perfectly capture how the real world works in a model. And two, we have to make some judgment calls and uh, some guesses about uncertain parameters that we use to set up the models, which are always wrong as well to some degree. Yeah. So let's talk about that. So 40% is kind of the central case. So how wide are those error bars? Sort of how big of an uncertainty are we looking at and tell us a little bit about sort of which trends and these, you know, these things you're making judgment calls about how they'll play out, which trends could conceivably turn out much better or worse than you estimate and sort of what effects would that have? It's helpful, again, to sort of break down the different sources of uncertainty. I should say we have not published our uncertainty analysis yet. We're actually refreshing all of our analysis, the repeat project to bring it up to date to 2022 assumptions and conditions because we started this in 2021 and we wanted mm. to keep everything internally consistent so you could compare between the Inflation Reduction Act and the Build Back Better Act and it wasn't going to be apples to oranges. Now we have to refresh and rerun everything. So in addition to updating the assumptions, we're also going to do sort of everywhere we had to make a judgment call on a policy's impact, we want to also we want to do you know a reliably pessimistic reading of those policies a reliably optimistic reading of those policies, and then a midpoint in between. And I should say we probably will have more downside risk than upside risk, right? That there's probably more ways this goes wrong than goes better than we expected, but there are ways it can go better than than we modeled as well. And there's like, there's whole policies that we ignored that have big impacts that I can come back to in a minute. Yeah, we'll get into those. So that's sort of the uncertainty around what will this policy actually do? And it's interesting if you look at energy innovation, which is one of the other three groups that's been looking at the bill and modeling it with a totally different you know, modeling suite. That's exactly the kind of analysis that they have done consistently. And they basically find in their work a plus or minus like two percentage points difference compared to 2005 emissions levels, or about 200 million tons, roughly, or 150 million tons variation around their their central estimate. And that results from their sort of uncertainty around the implementation of the bills. That feels about like what I would expect as well. And based on previous tuning runs that we did, you know, I would say plus or minus 150 to 200 million tons on either side of our central estimate, which was about a billion tons. So 15% plus or minus margin of error from our, uh, you know, in absolute terms, or, you know, maybe a couple percentage points of 2005 levels, if you want to put it in those terms. But don't you also have sort of behind those assumptions or judgments about what a policy will do? A whole set of judgments and assessments of just about how the economy is going to do regardless uh, of this sort of like population growth, yeah, GDP growth. That's exactly the second source of uncertainty, what I would kind of consider external uncertainties right. beyond the bill itself, but just what the heck is going on in the world over the next, you know, mm-hmm. eight to 15 years. <laughs> and that's, if you look at Rhodium Group, that's the other group that's done this analysis. That's the type of analysis that they've done. So when they present uncertainty bars, it's a different kind of uncertainty bar than energy innovation presents. So energy innovation is is modeling a single set of assumptions about technology costs and macroeconomic conditions mm-hmm. and fuel prices, and then varying the potential impact or implementation of the policies in the Inflation Reduction Act or the other bills that they've assessed before. What Rhodium has done is assessed under a single policy condition, right? Current policy or the Inflation Reduction Act, 
the variation in outcomes driven by uncertainty around fuel prices, economic growth, and clean energy technology costs. Those are the primary categories that they look at. And that drives a variation of about three percentage points of 2005 levels in their modeling. So that's how they get from 31 to 44%, actually bigger than that. So that's 13 percentage points. So it's like plus or minus like six percentage points. So there's a lot of external uncertainty, a lot of stuff that isn't about this bill that we can't control that could come in and change the trajectory for the United States, like a coronavirus pandemic or a war in, you know, land war in Europe or a surge or a drop in um, fossil energy prices. And those are also hard to predict. And, and we don't, you know, Rhodium tries to, to span that range and finds it's actually quite significant. And so I would, you know, add some additional uncertainty around those things. Sketch out just super, super quickly, what's the apocalyptic scenario here if both sources of uncertainty break for the worse? What does that result look like? And similarly, like if everything goes right, what does that look like? It would be a condition in which oil and gas prices are very low, Mm -hmm. in which clean energy technology costs stop progressing and falling. Right that newer solutions like carbon capture or hydrogen or advanced nuclear just never get off the ground, that consumer adoption of electric vehicles or heat pumps or whatever becomes just really slow and mired in distrust or or politicization, you know, like it becomes a sort of cultural touch point and there's just half the country that simply won't buy it even though it pays dividends. You know, those kinds of things, that would be the sort of aggregate worst case scenario or that, you know, there's no ability to expand transmission lines because every single one is is fought to the death and and you just can't build anything in this country, right? Mm-hmm. It, you know, if you add all those things up, then maybe we're talking about on the order of, a, I don't know, 30-ish percent below 2005 levels. But if you were to do that without this policy, then we probably would be, you know, basically at today's emissions levels, right? We wouldn't really be seeing any progress made in that kind of condition either, maybe a little bit lower. I think, you know, the the worst case in Rhodium Group's analysis just for the external conditions is a 24% reduction below 2005 under current policies. Um, that's like 5.2 billion tons uh, of annual emissions in 2030. And then their, their worst case in the Inflation Reduction Act is 31% reduction. So that's like 4.7. So that's maybe a half a billion tons of emissions reductions. From the bill, so you know maybe it's a little less than that if you also throw in the the bad policy implementation kind of environment as well. Mm-hmm. So that's a, you know that's a big error bar, um, but that's also again like if you roll the dice you know six times and, and you need to roll a one every time, the odds of that are really low, and many of these things are uncorrelated. And so I would put the probability of all of the worst case stuff happening at very low, and then there's also the upside, which is that all the best things happen, and that goes on the other end of things. And when we talk about best things happening, fossil fuel prices will be very high. Yeah, moderate or high. Yeah, that's what will help renewable energy is high, um, high oil prices. Well, you know, I think a best case scenario and things that like we don't capture in our modeling are so. Yeah, let's just maybe oil and gas prices stay high because while demand for oil and gas is falling in the United States and Europe, which would normally drive prices lower, maybe oil and gas companies look at the medium term outlook. And they say, you know what, I got to invest in development of a, of a project. There's risk there. It's going to take six or seven years to come to production. And then I need to know I can sell that oil for 10 or 20 years to make my money back. I don't really like the looks of the medium term you know, market environment. And so I'm actually not going to bring those projects forward. And then supply contracts and that brings prices back up. That's, you know, basically what we're seeing with with uh, U.S. refineries already that, mm-hmm. you know, no one has invested any significant capital in a U.S. oil refinery in a couple decades because they just don't see a lot of long term demand there. And so they're trying to sweat their current assets as long as they can, but they don't really want to spend billions of dollars on an oil refinery right now because they don't think there's much demand for their product in the 2030s. So that could lead to higher prices, that kind of, you know, uh, ultimate equilibrium in the oil and gas markets. And then let's assume wind and solar and CCS and nuclear and hydrogen and clean vehicles and sustainable aviation fuels and all those things really are catalyzed by the set of innovation and industrial policies and market deployment support in the Inflation Reduction Act and the infrastructure law and elsewhere in the world. And that the fact that we've now made clean energy cheap for everyone, right, cheaper than fossil fuels for businesses and households and utilities, 
drives sort of a feedback loop that leads to more and more adoption and more and more policy ambition over time at all levels of government. And now you're in the best case scenario. And that's plausible. It could happen too. Again, maybe not everything, all those things I just listed all at once, but some of them could certainly happen. And I would be willing to bet some of those feedback loops definitely will happen. Before we move on from modeling, one other question, which sort of uh, you may or may not have an answer to, but which I um, found interesting is, you know, we remember the Obama stimulus bill. We remember that there are $90 billion in there for clean energy. And we have, you know, over the last decade seen the fairly extraordinary effects that that investment had, you know, lots of other factors involved, but, you know, it it clearly drove prices down and, and created a booming U.S. market for those technologies it invested in. And I was just wondering, were people modeling that when it came out? And is there any way to look back and sort of compare what the models predicted that would do versus what it did? I'm not aware of anyone at the time who tried to model the impact of the of the Recovery Act funding. Um, there were a lot of efforts to model the impact of the Waxman-Markey bill, you know, the cap and trade provisions yes. there. You know, some of the federal RPS renewable portfolio standard policies, you know, the EIA model. I don't know that anybody tried to model the Recovery Act as a climate policy per se at the time because it wasn't really seen that way. Yeah. Even though, of course, that was the alternative strategy that some, including myself, were advocating at the time. I, I didn't have the modeling tools to do that then. Um, part of why I went to grad school and, you know, doing what I'm doing now is to be able to actually understand the impact of policies like that on our energy system. Um, be interesting to kind of do a backcast. But yeah, I, I don't know of any analyses of that. And I do want to say as, as much as I have a, a huge proponent of the Recovery Act and that, you know, the whole approach, the innovation, investment and industrial policy centered approach to energy policy, which is what we see here in the Inflation Reduction Act as well. I, I think we sometimes overcredit the Recovery Act hmm. with impacts because remember, you know, the Recovery Act was a couple years of funding and that was really important for some things like keeping Tesla from going bankrupt. One of the several times they almost nearly went <laughs> bankrupt, helping the auto industry come out of bankruptcy and launch some of their first electric vehicle offerings, you know, other kind of catalytic programs like that, that certainly helped, you know, bend the curve in the right direction. You know, it kept the wind and solar industries from collapsing due to lack of tax equity for a few years during the Great Recession. So it had a lot of, you know, near term impacts and also follow on impacts. But what we often think of as the impacts of that era are the declining cost of wind and solar and batteries, which while the Recovery Act contributed to, that was one of many global policies that helped keep those technologies on a downward cost trajectory and on a you know, growing scale up. Um, so it wasn't just the US, it was probably more so Europe on the demand side and China on the industrial policy side, also building out those industries over the same decade. Uh, after the Recovery Act. And collectively, those policy interventions globally drove down the cost of solar to a tenth of what it was when the Waxman-Markey bill died, and wind to a third of the cost as it was then, and the batteries a tenth of the cost again. So they've come down 90% as well, enabling cost-effective grid-scale storage and electric vehicles that are already at life cycle, you know, I mean, um, ownership cost of parity over mm-hmm. their first five years, right? That's just transformative. Congressional staffers are quick to remind me that the tax credit extenders that came between that stimulus bill and our current uh, situation actually deployed a larger amount of money than the stimulus bill did and probably deserve more credit. That's right. And those were more sustained, you know, over time as well. Yeah, right. I think that the wind credit expired or nearly expired once or twice. The solar credit actually, I think, has been continuously in place since 2008. Just stumbling along, getting battered this way and that, but has yeah. never died. It's pretty remarkable. I mean, there's political lessons to be drawn from that, it seems like. Definitely. Okay, let's move on from modeling. We've got a lot of uh, ground to cover. I want to now just squarely talk about the part of the bill that is generating the most angst and anguish among people on the broad left side of the spectrum, namely the stuff regarding oil and gas leasing. So just to begin with, just lay out what Manchin did. Like what when it comes to oil and gas leasing, just tell us what got inserted into the bill. There's uh, two specific provisions that are um, at kind of the heart of all of this concern and that and Manchin insisted on inclusion in the bill. The first one is the specific approval of four offshore lease areas, three in the Gulf of Mexico and one in the Cook Inlet in Alaska. 
that were offered under the offshore leasing program in under the, the Trump administration in 2017 and that were subsequently rescinded. Uh, I believe three of those by the Biden administration's Department of Interior and one by a court order. Rescinded on the basis of environmental concerns? Exactly. And or improper you know, administration and accounting for those concerns, right? So administrative procedures were not appropriately followed in the case of the legal proceeding. And then the, you know, Biden administration coming in and saying, no, this, we're redoing the analysis on this and we're taking them back. And so those are four specific projects. Presumably they'll be developed. It's not, they don't necessarily have to be, um, they could be purchased and then just rented. So this is just offering them for lease. No, it, it's the leases. The lease sales shall be concluded. And in one case, the oh. uh, National Environmental Protection Act permit shall be approved. Mm. And so this is four specific projects or areas that could lead to, you know, to further oil and gas development that are impacting four you know, sets of communities that, that are negatively impacted by those bills who followed all due process to fight those projects for years and won where the legislature that has nothing should normally have nothing to do with specific implementation of a leasing law like this, let alone overriding a court order, is coming in and saying these four leases should move forward. So that is frankly bullshit, right? <laughs> um, like that is not how the separation of power should work. That is not how yes. due process should work. And if I were, I mean, I'm mad about it and I have nothing to do with those projects, right? Is it so far from how things should work that it could be subsequently challenged legally? Or That is a good question for a lawyer. And I imagine they are thinking about it right now. I mean, I, from my perspective, and I mean, no, having dabbled in one or two college courses on administrative law. So, you know, discredit this uh, immediately. <laughs> I mean, it seems like a violation of the separation of powers, but then again, the legislature can do a lot and, um, you know, we'll see. I, I, I hope that they can be challenged. And these four projects you think are likely to be developed? I would assume that the reason they're in there is because the people who won those leases, and I actually don't know which companies specifically are, I should go find that out, wanted them enough and donated enough to <laughs> Senator Manchin <laughs> that he was willing to go to bat specifically for those four leases. So I think the odds of them being developed are fairly high. It's hard to see how Manchin has any connection to any of these it's certainly not benefiting West Virginia. <laughs> yes. Right. I mean, it's not benefiting West Virginia or any of his constituents, you know, other than he can maybe justify it as in we need lower gas prices and this will somehow lower oh, energy prices seven years from now. That's probably how he sleeps at night. <laughs> um, but, you know, the reality is it, it benefits him politically because this is his donor base. And right. So in terms of politically noxious <laughs> effects on the bill that Manchin did, yeah, this, this is, is the, gro bad. the grossest and the, the grossest worst one. and the least justifiable, these specific projects. Yep. And then the second provision, which I think is much less impactful for a variety of reasons and also just less like, I mean, it's still weird and, and doesn't make a lot of sense, but designed to be irritating. Let's not forget that. Designed to be irritating. Exactly. <laughs> so, so the other provision effectively is designed to prevent the president, current or future, from ceasing all leases of federal oil and gas on lands or federal lands or waters. Something that, of course, environmental groups and, and environmental justice advocates and climate, you know, keeping the ground climate advocates have been fighting for for several years. Right. And Biden paused them, but then had to resume them because of a court order. Is that right? Exactly. And so, yeah, so the Biden administration, you know, Biden ran on a pledge to have a moratorium on leasing. He made good on that pledge when he took office. And the courts, the D.C. Circuit, I think, ordered earlier this year, I think in April, that he uh, had to resume those programs that the you know justifications for the, the pause were improper and that he hadn't followed proper mm. procedures to do that. He could not you know, entirely eliminate leasing. And so leases sales have resumed. They're at a lower level than they were under the Trump administration. And the other thing that the president has discretion to do is raise royalty and rental rates on leases. And so he has also done that. Do those apply to fossil fuels and to wind and solar leasing or they have different royalty rates? Only to fossil fuels. These are, yeah, he raised oil and gas lease rates. Um, and specifically, I think for offshore, maybe also onshore. So what the provision does is says, if you want to lease offshore wind, you have to have offered for lease in the last year, at least 60 million acres of offshore oil and gas lease areas. And if you want to develop any rights of way for public on public lands for wind or solar, like on BLM land or National Forest Service land, you have to have previously offered for at least at least 2 million acres of onshore oil and gas leases. <laughs> so irritating. Those are offered for lease, not necessarily purchased. 
And so there are ways in which a savvy administration that is so inclined can certainly offer 60 million acres that are not particularly attractive. Right. That meet the letter of that law. And I imagine that there will be efforts underway to do stuff like that to get around this. But what it tries to do is basically deny a victory, not yet truly won, right, by environmental groups and and climate campaigners and others to ban federal oil and gas leasing. It basically says, sorry, you're not going to be able to do that if you want to have any renewable energy on public lands as well. So you have to offer some land for oil and gas leasing, but, you know, offering is different than actually being leased and actually being leased is different than actually being exploited, right? Right. Actually uh, being developed. So what, I mean, tell us what we should expect about the actual development impact of this. I think it's very hard to predict from those, you know, from that requirement, but my and it's hard to know because you don't know there's a certain amount of oil and gas demand. Some of that'll be on public land. Some of that'll be on non-public federal land. Some of that will be international. And it's hard to exactly predict where the breakdown of that will be. But if you think directionally about the impact of the bill on US oil and gas development, right, right. of projects overall, there is no subsidy in this bill for oil and gas development. There is no explicit you know, thumb on the scale for oil and gas development. There is a big thumb on the scale for all of the competition to oil and gas. <laughs> right. And so the bill is massively subsidizing, you know, clean electricity that will displace natural gas and coal-fired power. It is massively subsidizing energy efficient and electrified buildings that will reduce demand for natural gas and heating oil. It is massively subsidizing electric vehicles once and for for commercial purchases right away and for personal purposes once they build their supply chains out, it will dramatically lower the, you know, demand for gasoline and diesel. And so in aggregate, this bill is pushing down demand for petroleum products and natural gas, driving the first sustained decline in demand for those fuels in U.S. history. Yeah, that's that's such a exclamation point here. <laughs> yeah, I want I keep I feel like I want to just yell that <laughs> over and over again. Right. Like in, there has been no point in U.S. history outside of recessions when we have had declines in demand sustained over years for oil and gas. And this bill, the passage of this bill marks the beginning of that trend and it will not be the end, right? That's the beginning of that. All right. So if you're an oil and gas company, again, and you're saying, okay, they're offering some lands. Some of that land looks like it deliberately got stuck in there to suck and uh, not interested in that. <laughs> Maybe there's a couple in there I might want to bite on. Do I want to lease this land, pay the higher rental rates that the bill also implements? So this is in parallel with what Biden has already done. It codifies the floor price for royalties and rental. So basically when you lease a land, at least federal land, if you do, until you produce, you pay a rental price, which right. is just to hold the lease. That rental price goes up by a factor of 10 yeah, it's over been the so next several cheap years. for so long. This has been something yep. that people have been beating their heads on for years Yeah, and so years. you can't just sit on a lease and, and never produce, which is what Biden's been yelling at the you know, oil companies for doing right now as you know, prices surge. And then it also raises the royalty rate. The floor rate is actually, it sets it to a little bit below where Biden is currently uh, setting the rates at. But the president has discretion to lower them in the future. And this basically raises the floor up to close to where Biden has set it right now. Um, and so royalty rates are going up, rental rates are going way up, and demand for your product is going way down in the United States. And probably globally at some point around 2030, if not sooner, if you believe projections from some of the big oil companies like BP and Shell that previously projected peak oil demand globally around 2030, that was before the crisis in Europe that's driving Europe faster away from oil and gas and before the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act in the US, which will kick off that trend in the US. So, you know, if you take all that in aggregate, I, I don't see how this bill is going to lead to any increase in U.S. oil and gas production. It's probably going to lead to a substantial decrease. And the big uncertainty, which is what we focused on in our analysis, is simply what role does the U.S. specifically play in the global market for oil and LNG, uh, liquefied natural gas exports, which is hard, I mean, is outside of the scope of the bill and its impact and hard for us to model uh, explicitly. Let me just uh, put this out because this was a, a frequent question. I think a lot of people have the idea that there are things in this bill that are going to juice oil and gas production on public land. And even if demand falls in the U.S., we'll be exporting more and thus creating more emissions elsewhere, which will sort of reduce the net global impact on, on greenhouse gases. So just to, so you don't think that this is going to lead to increased oil and gas production or exports at all? 
I don't know about exports. I don't think it will lead to an increase. All else equal, demand for the product is going down. The cost of development on public lands is going up. And I think overall US production of oil and gas will be lower than in a world without the Inflation Reduction Act. The question is how much lower. And the big swing impact for that is, you know, the big driver of that is whether or not the US continues to step up as a large global exporter of liquefied natural gas, and, which I think is pretty likely, and oil, which is I, I'm, I have less of a you know a feel for. Uh, we you know are shifting out of this period that we've always we've been in since you know the 20s, right? Of being the world's largest importer of oil and gas, we've already become energy self sufficient in the sense that we produce more oil and gas than we consume, and we're net exporters of both natural gas and petroleum products now, uh, and have been since uh, 2020. And so the question is, how much more will we expand exports? And in a world where Russia is being, you know, excised from oil and gas supply chains for allied countries, and the U.S. is likely to step up to fill some of that gap, not all of it, because demand is going to go down in Europe for oil and gas overall, we may, you know, continue to increase our exports for some period of time. That will reduce the impact on domestic production relative to the decline in domestic consumption. So the way we address that in repeat project, and you can see this in our analysis, is we constructed two bounding scenarios that represent much bigger variation than the impact of the leasing provisions themselves. And that is basically one scenario where all of the decline in domestic consumption goes to reduce domestic production and imports, because we still import some petroleum products, uh, in proportion to their current and crude oil, in proportion to their current shares of our mix. So we're basically doing import substitution and then reducing domestic production. So declining US oil and gas production. The exports in that scenario remain fixed at the EIA's projected levels before the crisis in Europe and before the passage of this act. So that's still slightly higher LNG over the next couple of years, um, but then it sort of flattens out and, and oil exports are basically flat in that scenario. And then there's another scenario we created, which is the sort of high oil and gas production, where we assume that natural gas production and, ga and oil production stay flat at the projected levels without the bill. And 100% of the freed up domestic supply that we no longer need for US use goes to exports. Now, I cap the LNG export potential in the near term based on some projects that are already underway or nearly contracted. So we don't have an unlimited ability to export LNG, but that still allows a substantial increase in LNG exports. And so in that scenario, basically, there's no impact of this bill on domestic production and all of our excess uh, supply goes to the export market. That's an extreme case. Both of them are probably extreme cases and the reality is going to fall somewhere in between. Before we move on here, let's just sort of sum up. In terms of the obnoxious things Manchin put in the bill, and I will just say, I mean, I guess this depends on your level of cynicism or your estimation of Manchin, but I got to say, like, the bill was in Manchin's hands, and by the end, Schumer had very clearly conveyed to Manchin, dude, just write a bill. <laughs> give, give us literally anything, we'll sign it. Please, whatever you want. Like, all pretenses had been dropped. By the end, yep. it was literally just Manchin. Given that context, I got to say, like, he could have done way more damage. He could have put in way more obnoxious stuff than this. He could have put in some direct subsidies for oil and gas. I mean, you, you let your imagination run. There's all kinds of things he could have done. So this... You know, these these four projects that are getting greenlit, super obnoxious, terrible for the communities involved, terrible procedure, terrible legally, awful. And the leasing thing are bad, but not apocalyptic bad, not substantial effect on the overall impact of the bill on, on emissions bad. Yeah. It almost seems like, and you know, everybody's always trying to figure out Manchin and this is probably just speculation like everything else, but it almost seems like he just needed to have something super obnoxious in it so that he could be seen making environmentalists scream. But in terms of like obnoxiousness relative to impact, these are very obnoxious, but their overall impact on emissions is relatively small compared to a number of other things he could have done. Their impact on emissions, if you assume that the counterfactual is sort of continued leasing as per the Biden administration's current 
you know, lease offerings after the court order and, you know, sort of BAU lease rates under over the last decade under both Obama and Trump, then the business as usual impact of this is basically nil. Brian Prest, who is an economist at Resources for the Future and has done probably the most detailed modeling and analysis of the impact of supply side policies, you know, to constrain oil and gas production on emissions, just posted a thread today on Twitter and a new uh, analysis he put out that basically found that if you know you have to decide what your counterfactual world is, right? If your counterfactual world is the current one where Biden is leasing oil and gas sales uh, or is offering oil and gas leases, and the you know any future Republican administration certainly is going to as well, then against that counterfactual, the impact of the combined increase in royalty and rental rates and the leasing provisions is maybe a little bit of a decrease in emissions in the US because of the royalty rates and maybe mm-hmm. like a you know, 2 million ton increase, something like very close to zero. If your counterfactual is the world that environmentalists and you know, keep it in the ground supply side climate activists have been fighting for, where you successfully ban federal oil and gas leasing and sustain that ban over the next decade, which is like the best case you know, scenario, then this provision ha- you know, preventing that would lead to, uh, his, in his estimate, a roughly 20 million ton increase in US emissions in 2030. That's, you know, 2% of the total impact of the bill. And again, that's that's a counterfactual world that we have not yet created, right? That climate activists have not succeeded in creating. And let's be serious, highly unlikely to to create yeah, total federal ban on oil and gas leasing seems uh unlikely. Yeah, and and just to finally just to put a fine point in this, and then the broader variation in oil and gas exports that we looked at in our analysis mm-hmm. that could really you know swing oil, U.S. oil and gas production up or you know sort of either keep it at the current levels or or have it decline quite a bit. That's a variation of about forty million tons per year from the high to the low end in twenty thirty, or or again about four percent of our total. Our central estimate is that we report in the report is an average of those two. So again, it's plus or minus 20 million tons or about 2% around our billion ton estimate. So the take home here is the effect on U.S. oil and gas production and demand by the clean energy policies in this bill dwarf the effects on oil and gas production and demand in these specific obnoxious provisions that Manchin put in. That's how I read it, and that's what our analysis shows, yeah. Okay, we got to get past leases, and I hesitate to bring this up because it's a huge subject, so we're going to try to keep it super tight on this. But also, beyond the bill, we're coming up on this permitting reform that they're going to try to squeeze in some other must-pass bill, and there's a lot of debate about whether this, you know, even if you think the effects of the bill will be relatively minimal on oil and gas production, that there's worry that... The oil and gas companies are getting involved in this permitting reform. They're going to make it easier to develop uh, land and and permitting reform, even though theoretically could benefit any kind of permitting, including renewable energy, is going to, in fact, benefit oil and gas. So give me the tightest 30 seconds you've got <laughs> on, on how worried we should be about permitting reform. So, I mean, anytime... Uh, you have a bipartisan bill that's being assembled, you know, potentially assembled and led by, you know, Joe Manchin with, you know, 10 Republicans. There's a lot of opportunity for shenanigans and for <laughs> policies that benefit their core donors and constituents. Um, and so I would I definitely, you know, say we need to be wary about what is included in the bill. Uh, and we don't know yet what it, there's like one draft that went to ledge council that's been circulated by some. And that, that's certainly not the definitive bill. Like when things go to legislative council, that's just people drafting stuff. We don't know where that bill is at. So yes, there's a potential that it will make permitting easier for pipelines. That's the one that, you know, Senator Manchin is very explicitly focused on the Mountain Valley pipeline that would allow greater exports of Marcellus uh, natural gas in, you know, West Virginia and Pennsylvania and Ohio to the coast where it can, to, to, you know, into Virginia, where it could be potentially exported or used in the Eastern, you know, East Coast population centers. Uh, you know, and there may be other, you know, kind of specific pipeline projects that could be easier to proceed, you know, depending on what the permitting for reforms look like. On the other hand, side, the biggest downside risk in our modeling, the thing that could undermine the billion tons of emissions reductions the most is the inability to build, site, and interconnect wind and solar facilities and transmission to interconnect them uh, in a timely manner, consistent with the economically, you know, optimal outcome in our modeling. 
we basically need to double the pace of U.S. transmission expansion. Yeesh. And we need to basically, you know, right now there's just a total logjam for the, in the interconnection queues for the major grid operators that needs to be fundamentally rewritten, you know, into a process that is automated and much faster and, you know, easier to move through. And if we don't succeed on that side of things, um, then, you know, there are, you know, at least 100 million tons, maybe 200 million tons of emissions reductions at stake in 2030. And so, you know, again, it comes down to this real question about where you feel we are in terms of the kind of tipping points in the energy transition. If you think that, you know, we were very close to wind and solar being dominant in the electricity sector, if you think that we're very close to electric vehicles being dominant in transportation, if you think that the bill is going to catapult, you know, home electrification and building efficiency and a range of industrial decarbonization options forward as well, then on net, allowing both fossil energy and renewable energy some amount of easier permitting processes should lead to more fast reductions in emissions and more clean energy deployment on net. If you don't think that, if you think that, you know, we actually are still fighting really uphill and the best thing we can do right now is to just stop all the fossil energy development projects, you know, and anything we let through is a disaster, you know, then you're going to be extra wary about that from an emissions perspective. And then there's just the procedural justice aspect of it, which is that, again, like the legislature just went in and approved four projects that they have no business doing. If the permitting reform process, you know, nukes the ability for people to have a say, an appropriate say and due process that is going to be bad from a procedural justice perspective. And that's true on the clean energy side as much as it is on the dirty energy side. And so we have to balance all of that. And I, you know, I don't know what the bill is going to look like when nobody does right. yet. But to say immediately that permitting reform is bad and then we have to fight this, I think, is being premature. I think we need to know what's in it. We need to try to shape it to be as advantageous as possible for the clean energy transition. And we need to be as wary, you know, we need to be wary and uh, on the defensive about particular poison pills that would really undermine procedural justice. And that's going to be hard and it may not work. It may fall apart. Uh, I think that's pretty likely. But uh, but I wouldn't say our job now is to kill permitting reform. In fact, if you care about the clean energy transition, our central challenge now that this bill has passed is to build stuff as fast as we can. Clean stuff. To build the clean energy economy as fast as we can. That's going to need permitting reform. So this, I, I feel like this is the, a little, the take-home message here that I want to underline here. Renewable energy clean energy needs permitting reform more arguably than the oil and gas industry feels like they need it. We need to uncork this enormous amount of backlog. So yeah, the danger is there, but it's also not something that can just be skipped or completely squashed, right? We, we, we need the good version of it. Yeah. And I think what we're likely to see, to be honest, Dave, and we're already sort of seeing this play out. Um, I actually just got a note uh, 30 minutes ago from Evergreen Action saying it's an easy call. We need to vote permitting reform down. Hmm. Um, Is that I doubt that there will be a bill that moves this fall um, because I think what you're going to see is folks like Evergreen and others, um, you know, sort of standing with allies, right? And, And who are legitimately concerned about procedural justice. And saying, you know, look, we had to cut some deals to get the Inflation Reduction Act done. We'll back you here in helping fight this. And I think at the same time, you're going to see Republicans saying, you know, we don't have a lot of urgency here. We could do this next time we're in power on our terms. And so I think it's fairly unlikely that we get it done uh, this time around. But I do think it's important that anybody who cares about the clean energy transition, and I include my friends at Evergreen Action in this, you know, that we are very clear (laughs) that the challenge moving forward is to find a way to square the circle, to make it easier and faster to build projects while increasing, not decreasing procedural justice and the ability for people to have a say in the process. Which would be challenging even if you were at a table uh, surrounded by people working in good faith. (laughs) Yes, So I don't think that it will get there in the next two months, but I do think it's the conversation we need to be having next and we need to be focused on. And I'll just give my plug for sort of my broad vision for how you might be able to square that circle, which is that right now we have a process, a bunch of processes that involve a whole bunch of different veto points where people with the right means and the right lawyers and the right knowledge can come in and hold up a project 
at the local level, at the state level, you know, different federal permitting agencies, et cetera. And you just create a whole bunch of veto points where basically you have a private developer coming forward and proposing a project. And then lots of people, particularly the most well-resourced people, so not the you know ones that uh, we're most concerned about in terms of procedural justice, are able to, f- to shoot it down at some point along the way. And that process just doesn't work for what we need to do uh, to build a clean energy economy. It doesn't work because it doesn't make it easy for disadvantaged and overburdened communities to have a voice in the process. And it doesn't work because it's just too darn risky, right? You can make it through four of the five hurdles. And as long as one of them trips you up, you're done. Yeah. And it also doesn't work because it's project by project. And it's always easy to imagine a hypothetical better other project than the one that's sitting in front of you right now with an actual route through actual people's backyards and you know actual impacts. And so I think we have to shift away from that somehow to a process that is much more programmatic and regional in scale and scope, where we're basically saying, look, we need to build the clean energy economy at scale. We need to build hundreds of gigawatts of wind and solar. We need to build the transmission network to support that. We need to site and permit safe geologic storage basins for CO2 and the safe pipeline network to support that. You know, we need to build out hydrogen hubs. Like all of this stuff has to happen at a larger scale. And we need to proceed in a way that allows sort of one process that is regional in scope that allows everyone to have a voice in that, which means probably paying people to come, Mm -hmm. right? And be part of that process if they can't otherwise, you know, be part of it, right? And making it easier for the communities that need to be heard from to have a voice at that table. And then the goal is not to shoot down a project. It is to successfully cite 20 projects. And that sounds radical maybe, right? I mean, we don't have an agency that does that. (laughs) And I don't think we're going to get one in September, (laughs) But I think we have to be moving in that direction. And there have some good examples of that that have happened, including the Western uh, land solar uh, siting process that um, BLM and other and Department of Interior uh, led on federal public lands in, in the Obama administration era, where environmental groups and conservation groups and local communities work together with the public lands agencies to identify renewable energy development zones that would be easier to permit in that basically have their environmental reviews cleared where the public was supportive. And then other sites that were like, don't go there. This is a high conservation value area. We don't want to see it there. And that, you know, significantly de-risks development on federal lands. Um, There's similar efforts in the uh, Northeast around offshore wind siting involving, you know, fishermen and, and, and lobstermen and, and marine industries and coastal communities I think we have to do more of that and a lot more of it. And that'll have to work its way through the process at some point to get on the pace that we need to be and sustain it. All right. We're going to have to do a separate pod on permitting reform at some point, clearly. Um, Let's move on and talk about the other thing that seems to bug the most people the most about the bill. Uh, One of the other things, which I think is another fingerprint of mansions on the bill, which is the... Tax credits for carbon capture, for carbon capture and sequestration. To begin with, maybe just tell us, what did Manchin do <laughs> to those tax credits? Some, a couple of small technical changes were what occurred in the final version of the bill. The, from the very beginning, the Build Back Better Act contained an expansion of uh, 45Q, which is the tax credit for carbon capture, storage, and or use. And it's currently... Increasing gradually over time to $50 per ton in 2026, I think, for capture and storage and $35 per ton for capture and use, like in enhanced oil recovery or synthetic fuels or, or other, um, you know, making cement that can absorb CO2, things that can, can take up CO2 in industrial processes. So Manchin didn't increase the dollar amount? Yeah, so he did. He So that's the current law. He increased it to $85 per ton for, mm. for capture and storage. That's not a small and increase. And $60 for use. And he also, they also added in a new direct air capture, uh, separate, you know, subsidy that direct air capture previously didn't qualify. Now, if you take CO2 directly out of the atmosphere, you can get $180 per ton if you sequester or store the CO2 and $130 uh, for use. So those levels went up and they went up in both the power sector and in industry. There were some early discussions about having that only occur in industry and cut out power. But in the original version of the Build Back Better Act that released, the provision applied across both power and industry. And then what has changed as the bill evolved is some threshold requirements about how much CO2 a unit has to capture in the power sector or in industry if it wants to qualify. 
And so what happened in the original law that the House, you know, the House passed bill was that you had to capture at least, I think, 70% of emissions uh, across the facility. And so what that meant is if you're an oil refinery with a bunch of different point sources, you would have to capture 70% of all the CO2 across your facility. Or if you're a gas or coal plant that has multiple generating units, you have to capture all of that, you know, 70% of all of the emissions. That changed as it went along to eliminate that requirement for industry because it's very difficult. Industrial facilities are large and usually have multiple point sources. And so you don't really want to disincentivize them from capturing where they can if they can't do it everywhere. So that's where that change come from. And then there was also a, a bunch of changes along the way that ended up um, where basically for power to qualify, they have to have the design capability to capture 75% of annual emissions at the average of the highest three years of production in the last 12. And, and so you have to design your facility to at least be able to capture that much. It doesn't require you to actually capture that much, which has some uh, folks concerned. And it could be revised in the future if your production falls significantly. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I've been engaged with Sierra Club folks and others who are concerned that that is a, you know, a, a blank slate for projects to install much less than 90%, you know, capture, which is kind of where most of the, stu- the feed studies, the engineering design studies that are underway for projects are targeting right now. That's what we modeled in our, our modeling is assuming 90% capture. You know, if you only had a 60% capacity factor and you only have to, I mean, you only produce 60% of your maximum output over the course of the year and you only have to capture 75% of that, then maybe you're only capturing, you know, 45, 50% of your annual emissions uh, or of the emissions, sorry, that you're generating uh, um, over the course of the year if you were to somehow ramp up your production. I respect that that is a thing that a utility could try to do under this law. The economics of carbon capture have large economies of scale to them so that if it makes sense to install a capture system that could capture 50 or 70% of your emissions, it will make even more financial sense to install an incremental unit of capacity that can get you up to 90% capture because the marginal cost of capturing that next percentage point falls as you build a bigger system up to a point, and that point is usually somewhere between 90 and 95%, where now there's so little CO2 left in the flue gas that it starts to go up exponentially, the amount of of energy you have to consume to get the next increment out, which is why most of these post-combustion capture systems are designed to install, to to capture somewhere between 90 and 95% of CO2. And so if it makes financial sense for you to do a 50% capture or 70% capture, it's going to make even more sense for you to do 90% capture. And so that's what we modeled because that's what you know makes financial sense. Now a lot of folks will point out utilities are prone to do things that don't make financial sense, and <laughs> you know I can't argue with that. Um, so maybe someone will do something that's dumb and leave money on the table, and it's going to be up to vigilant activists and ratepayer advocates, as it always is, to keep utilities honest. Okay, let me just do a couple of rapid fire questions about the CCS thing because people had several different questions about it. One is the ramped up CCS tax credits ramp up the amount of emissions reductions that they are responsible for in your model. There's a big chunk of the net uh, emission reductions are attributed to CCS. So people have the question, CCS hasn't really panned out yet. (laughs) And what if it doesn't pan out? You know, what if it continues to just be prohibitively uh, expensive or difficult to build and practice? What happens to those emission reductions that it was supposed to be responsible for? Yeah. So, you know, whether you see CCS as a concession to Joe Manchin or other interests, or whether you see it as a necessary tool in the emissions toolbox, right, to decarbonize industry and maybe less important for power, but it's something that makes economic sense under the bill. You know, what, what our modeling is basically showing is that it will make financial sense to deploy carbon capture at scale across a variety of sectors um, from power to heavy industry where you have favorable access to offtake for that CO2, where you have a pipeline or a storage basin or a user who will take that CO2 from you. So it's not universally everywhere, but in certain locations across the country, there will be facilities that now make economic sense to install carbon Mm -hmm. capture that have never made economic sense before. And there may be technical hurdles. I mean, we've deployed carbon capture at full scale, you know, in every major application somewhere in the world to date, many of them in the United States. And so there's a lot of technical de-risking that's already happened. There are vendors who are willing to sell you systems with warranties. And so it now makes financial sense. I would imagine that will lead over time to a substantial amount of deployment. The big uncertainty for me is is not, is it zero, but you know, how fast can it grow? Well, just if it's much less than the model shows, does that threaten 
the overall reductions, the emission reductions? To some degree, it does. So our modeling has 200 million tons, roughly, of, of emissions reductions from carbon capture and storage across industry and power. It's about 60% industry, 40% power. That I wouldn't pay a lot of faith in that split because we had to set aside the tons for industry first, uh, exogenously the way our model is set up, and then let the model fight over the remaining 90 million tons amongst the stuff that we explicitly optimize in our in our model. So that it could be that it makes more sense to do other things. But the 200 million tons comes from our estimate of how rapidly we can build out CO2 storage and injection basins, um, or injection and storage basins, to safely store that CO2 in geologic basins. And that will be constraining. What we find is that 200 million tons is, you know, that's the cap we put in in 2030 on storage, and that is a binding limit. And so if you can't build out transport and storage networks at that pace, there will be less CO2 capture. If you can build out more, there might even be more, you know, there's more economic opportunities that are not captured in our modeling. Uh, And so it's an uncertain, you know, the growth rate for that, just like the growth rate for wind and solar and transmission deployment or the growth rate for EV supply chains is a central uncertainty that will make a big difference in the near and medium term. And if, you know, if all those break badly, uh, emissions outcomes will be less than we model. Then if some of those break better and some of those break worse, then maybe they'll cancel out. And if they all break better, then maybe we'll make deeper reductions. What about the worry among activists that allowing the carbon that's captured to be used for enhanced oil recovery, in effect, sort of gives oil and gas companies a chance to have a green sheen while continuing production? In some sense, uh, we'd be subsidizing that production by giving them so much money uh, in tax credits for capturing and then allowing them to use that captured carbon to produce more oil and gas. There certainly, I mean, there already is oil and gas uh, enhanced oil recovery going on across the country. I think we inject somewhere on the order of 85 million tons of CO2 a year uh, for EOR. That's what most captured CO2 does now. I mean, that's... Well, but most of that is not captured from... uh, Point sources, it's ca- it's taken out of geologic storage, right, 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 in Colorado and Utah and other places where you have naturally forming CO two, or it's stripped out of natural gas as we pull the natural gas up, and then pumped back down for enhanced oil recovery. So, first of all, any of that CO two that we displace is a good thing because we're not pumping up more fossil CO two that we don't need to. We already have that <laughs> coming out of smokestacks, so let's use that first. It's likely to be less than 100 million tons in total. That was our estimate for Net Zero America of available and additional EOR. So if you do get to 200 million tons and then grow from there, the majority of that will be geologic storage, not EOR. And EOR might have a net subsidy from certain capture sources. But you got to remember, you got to pay for all of the capture and transport and injection as well with that $85 a ton. And that you know is about what it currently costs to do carbon capture probably. And so... There may be places where over time carbon capture gets cheaper and it becomes a net subsidy for oil production if they somehow manage to keep the profits on the oil side rather than the you know, emitter side. Again, I think that's in the noise of what happens to global demand for oil and gas, which is mm. going to be the big determinant of how much we produce in the US. And then from an environmental impacts perspective, if we are going to be doing any oil and gas production in the US, it is better off to do that in depleted existing basins than to do greenfield development in new areas that have not previously been impacted. Um, I think that's generally true. It's not universally true, but I think it's generally true that, you know, you're developing an existing site that already has the infrastructure in place, already has the pipelines built, and you're getting more oil out of it rather than trying to site and, and build a brand new oil field or gas field um, that is likely to have even greater environmental impact. So I don't, I mean, I'm not the average person, <laughs> you know, in the environmental movement maybe, but um, it's not my central concern. And you know, whether or not it gives them a green veneer or some sort, you know, that depends a lot on how successful environmental you know, activists are at continuing to problematize the moral license for oil and gas. So I would say have some faith in those efforts. They seem to be working. What about um, the environmental justice community hates uh, CCS tax credits, has for a long time, has really dug in in opposition to them. And I think the character of their concern is that Polluting facilities, I guess, in industry or or the power sector, often located in vulnerable communities, often you know, as as we all know, are often uh, disproportionately harming uh, vulnerable communities. 
And the idea or the worry, I think, is that allowing them to attach carbon capture rather than close down will just continue that harm to environmental justice communities. So what's your sort of general response to that worry? Yeah, so I think that, you know, that concern, which is, you know, if you are living next to a specific project that would specifically impact your life is a totally legitimate concern. I think it comes down to, again, like, what is your counterfactual, right? Is your counterfactual a world where we successfully ban all fossil fuels in the next, you know, handful of years? Uh, where we successfully stop producing any cement or other industries that we might install carbon capture on that are not, you know, oil, gas, or coal facilities, you know, that we entirely eliminate all environmental impacts of our energy system, right? That's an aspirational goal. That's a goal we're working towards. It's a goal we all want to get to, at least I do. But I don't know if too many people feel like that's we're on the cusp of achieving that anytime soon. And so if your other counterfactual is the current situation, then I think the question, broadly speaking, when it comes to environmental justice is, does this bill cause harm or reduce harm? Well, it can do both at the same time, right? I mean, it's- Yeah, yeah. Certain provisions could cause harm. Certain provisions could reduce harm. I think it's fair to say that there is no other world where this bill exists without any one of these provisions, (laughs) right? Because we know we went all, all the way to the brink of failure twice, and this is the best product we could get out of the US Congress. And so I don't think you can take any of them out with, and, and still keep all the other stuff. You could have no bill or you could have this bill. Right. And this is, you know, and this is it's a tender subject, but in my estimation, and I think yours, and I think there's a clear case to be made for this, even purely viewed through the lens of environmental justice, even if you put all other considerations aside, a world with this bill is way, way better than a world without this bill, even purely for environmental justice communities. That's exactly right. And, you know, again, I think that we know that it specifically causes harm to the communities impacted by the four lease areas. You know, outside of that, whatever environmental harm you're talking about, in aggregate, it is going down. You know, oil production will fall. The question is how much. Gas production will fall. The question is how much. Coal production is going to continue to fall. The question is how fast it gets to zero. The generation of coal power, inclusive of carbon capture, falls to 7 or 8% of our U.S. electricity mix in 2030 in our modeling from over 20% today and down from 50% a decade ago. And it could be much more than that because we're not capturing a range of policies that help further accelerate the retirement and repowering of the U.S. coal fleet that are in the bill that we're going to try to model in our kind of optimistic case next time around. But that includes $250 billion in loan authority at DOE and $9.7 billion to capitalize grants and loans and refinancing at the USDA's Rural Electric Authority. We're going to get to that later, Jesse. Don't, yeah. don't, don't so, spoilers. Yeah. You so know, there's money to help accelerate coal retirements even further. So air pollution from urban vehicles, which is the leading cause of air pollution in the country, way down. So, you know, if you're thinking about any of those environmental harms that are disproportionately impacting environmental justice communities today, they all go down under this bill, not up. Which disproportionately helps those communities. Exactly. I, just, I, I emphasize this over and over again, because even in the environmental justice communities literature about this bill, that seems to get lost. Like insofar as you reduce particulate pollution or, you know, car pollution, or greenhouse gases, or any environmental, literally, insofar as you reduce any environmental harm, you are thereby having disproportionate benefits for vulnerable communities because they're unduly harmed by them. They're unduly helped by their reduction. So in a sense, every reduction of environmental harm in the bill is an environmental justice policy. That's right. And that's outside of the explicitly, you know, $60 billion or so in explicit environmental justice provisions in the bill that will ensure that we accelerate emissions reduction and pollution progress, specifically in uh, environmental justice and, you know, and, and disadvantaged communities. This bill will substantially improve environmental justice outcomes across the country. What it won't do are two things that I, you know, think deservedly motivate additional action and frustration and, you know, and in many cases, anger, which is that they don't eliminate those damages yet. Right. And they also don't meet procedural justice demands of environmental justice communities, which is like, why the hell does Joe Manchin and Chuck Schumer get to write a bill in Washington that decides what happens in my backyard? Yes. Right. And that I get that. Like that is 
a different kind of justice, right? There's a procedural element of environmental justice claims that is very important. That's such a good point. The people impacted by these things should have a say in the process. And on the other hand, there is the outcome-oriented justice aspect of it, which is what are the actual you know, felt impacts for people in the world. And this bill, I think, meets that test in the sense that it dramatically reduces those impacts on environmental justice communities, really communities all over the country. It also delivers a lot of economic opportunity in those communities very explicitly through policies in the bill that try to drive investment and manufacturing and economic opportunities into communities that, you know, that want that development. On the other hand, it does not meet procedural justice concerns unless you feel like the U.S. Senate is a, an effective body for <laughs> representation of the myriad views of the U.S. populace, which I know that we certainly have our, our doubts about, uh, the two of us. Um, yes, this is the language about, you know, we're being used as pawns, as sacrifice zones to get this big bill. That is true. <laughs> it sucks. Yeah, I mean, again, it's it's true. De- and that's the procedural piece, and it's it's absolutely infuriating. It's true from a procedural piece. It isn't necessarily true from an impact piece. Like I have heard a lot of people say this will perpetuate or, you know, or, or sustain harm. Yes. Got to keep those distinct. And I don't know that there's a lot of strong evidence for that. I think that it will reduce harm all over the place and particularly in, in, in disadvantaged communities that have been impacted most negatively by pollution. It doesn't eliminate that harm. So why, if by perpetuate, you mean it doesn't successfully eliminate it. Okay, that's fair. Yeah. Um, and there's more work to be done. I am with you on that work. But, you know, I don't think it perpetuates or necessarily even causes directly any harm other than for the four specific leases where those projects, you know, basically outside of the passage of this bill, those projects would not have moved forward. Right. So they are definitely additional harm, you know, specific harms the bill causes. Everything else that this bill does without this bill would not have happened. (laughs) Right. And all of those things are good for environmental justice communities and for Americans everywhere. And so, yes, from a procedural perspective, People cut deals that are you know not in your interest, and that is unjust procedurally. From a harms perspective, I think that outside again of those leases, you know we are going to see dramatic improvements in environmental outcomes right. over the next decade, and that's good. That's a good distinction to make. Okay, got a bunch of other stuff to hit. It's clear, uh, as I probably should have predicted, that we're probably going to have to break this up into two episodes. <laughs> <laughs> well, we got to get through 10 hours, right? So I'm, I'm going to go through a cup of coffee and we'll, we'll keep going. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Volts podcast. It is ad free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's Volts. WTF so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much and I'll see you next time.